0: we have the opportunity this morning to look again to God's Word, and I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, Mark 9, verses 2 through 13, and the account of the transfiguration of Christ. This... Message really dovetails perfectly from the theme of last Sunday's message, Dr. Bo Beatles, on suffering. You know that this account of the Transfiguration of Christ occurs with three of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we read last time, two Sundays ago, from all three passages, and I trust you'll refer yourself back to those parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke. For our purposes this morning, we want to gain the attention of Mark chapter 2 verse through verse 13. And it is a wonderful account of the life of our Lord. It says, And six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, And brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now you remember from last time I told you that really there were two overarching themes from this account of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The first overarching theme, if you remember, was that this text teaches unmistakably the deity of Christ. On that holy mountain on which Jesus was transfigured, the disciples saw clearly that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was no mere man. He was indeed God in human flesh. And we saw that this is a great text to affirm the deity of Christ to those who don't believe. And we saw also that there was a second overarching theme in this text. And it really comes to us In a couple of verses, in verse 38 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus says that the Son of Man will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of Him when He comes, the Bible says, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. There, of course, referring to His second coming. And we see that in this text of Scripture, Jesus is marking for us His soon coming return. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I believe that six days later, according to verse 2, the initial glimpse of that power was in this transfiguration. There was another stage when the Holy Spirit came with power at Pentecost when the disciples began to preach boldly and thousands were added to the church. And of course, the third stage will be the ultimate coming, the second coming of Christ, to be the judge of all the earth, to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet, sandwiched in between those two overarching themes... One you could say at the top and the other you could say at the bottom is something in between. And within the text of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, I believe another theme emerges. And that theme is the theme for which we will occupy ourselves this morning. And that theme can simply be stated this way. For anyone, including Christ, For anyone, including Christ, there is suffering and then glory. Suffering and glory. The transfiguration account has a clear and implicit message that says, For anyone, looking at the transfiguration of Christ, you see suffering and glory. And for any Christian who walks the path of seeing Christ as their example, it is for you and for me the model and the example for our own suffering and ultimate glory. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer what? Persecution. There will be persecution. There will be suffering. There will be trials. There will be tests. There will be pain in this life. And through the midst of that pain, because of that pain, as a learning tool for us, we will ultimately, through that pain, reach glory. That is the Bible's teaching. You know, we talk often about the sufferings and the trials of Jesus as He went through them in His earthly ministries. And we should. But we also need to be reminded of the glory of Christ. And this mount of transfiguration, as we have come to call it, is a clear example of the glory of Christ. We often, I think, overemphasize one against the other. Sometimes we overemphasize the concept of suffering And we leave out the idea that glory is the ultimate result of any suffering that Christians endure. And it is also true that at times we overemphasize the concept of our future glory in heaven. And we tend by that to minimize the suffering that is part and parcel of every Christian's life. And I believe this text can show us in clear terms that suffering is, and glory go together. They're linked together for us and for our Savior. Someone said, Along with the conflicts and labors and tears, there will certainly come many an hour of glorious vision and high and holy fellowship. And speaking of Christ, the vision of the holy mount, this mount of transfiguration, always compensates for Gethsemane. In other words, Jesus had trial. He had tests. No question about it. He suffered greatly. And as He suffered greatly, this mount of transfiguration has the glory of Christ seen so clearly that He, although He suffered in Gethsemane, although He suffered at the cross, The glory did follow. And for us, if we suffer, if we're in pain, all of those folks that I mentioned for which we prayed a moment ago, the glory will come. Be encouraged by that. Be comforted in that. That no amount of pain, no amount of suffering, no amount of trials or testing that we receive in this life is for us the only thing we receive in this life. We receive those things, but they are but a precursor to prepare us for glory. As I was preparing this message, I thought of really three outline points that are very simple that are stated here. Verses 2 through 4 is the transfiguration itself. The account of the transfiguration itself. And verses 5 to 8 show us the confirmation, the confirmation that Jesus is God in human flesh. And then thirdly, in verses 9 to 13, we see the proclamation, the proclamation, the transfiguration, the confirmation, and the proclamation. You see, what does it show us? Well, it shows us in each of those three outline points that very same theme that runs through these verses. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. Someone well stated it when comparing this transfiguration account and the account of the cross, suffering and glory, these things. The glory revealed on the mountain is a private epiphany, while the suffering on the cross is a public spectacle. Jesus is surrounded on the mountain by two prophets of old, Moses and Elijah. On Golgotha or the cross by two thieves. On the mountain, Jesus' garments glisten in His glory. On Golgotha, they take His garments from Him, compounding His humiliation. Three male disciples view His glory at close range. Three female disciples view His suffering from afar. A divine voice from the cloud announces that Jesus is the Son of God. One of his executioners, a Roman centurion, acclaims him to be the Son of God after his death. In both scenes, someone raises the question of Elijah. Coming down the mountain, Jesus informs his disciples that Elijah has already come and they did to him as they pleased. When Jesus hangs from the cross in torment, the bystanders taunt Him with one last jibe. Let's see if Elijah comes to take Him down. The The perceptive reader knows that they have things all wrong. There will be deliverance. And the glory of God will be manifest on Golgotha. You see, what's happening is, That when we overemphasize one against the other, we see something like the cross and we overemphasize the pain and the suffering that is there. Now, there is pain and suffering there and to the maximum, but it doesn't end there because the pain and the suffering gives way to glory and honor. And what we see here in the transfiguration account is all glorious. But as soon as that glory is revealed and as soon as Jesus is left alone with those three disciples and they come down the mountain, he says, the Son of Man will be treated with contempt. And you know what that shows me? That shows me that suffering and glory are so linked that sometimes it's difficult to see one without the other. And there are times when you and I go through suffering and agony and pain and misunderstandings and criticisms, and we go through those, and we're so focused on our sufferings that we don't realize that just around the corner, if we respond rightly to that suffering, is God giving us a glimpse of His glory. You say, well, what does it look like? What will it look like? Well, when you go through that trial and test, and you don't sin in the process, the glory is right there, because God has given you His grace and His mercy to withstand it. And when you further grow and spiritually mature in your Christian walk, and when you see those trials and those tests as opportunities for growth, as one said, His chastisements are my advertisements. I'm able to see through the suffering to the glory that surely will be present with me by His grace and mercy and will be resident with me in fullness, in perfection, in my glorification. And so when Jesus is transfigured here, it's but for a moment. And He reemphasizes again and again and again to His disciples. The suffering is here. The suffering is here. But even in that suffering, it lasts for a little while. And then the full glory to come. See, how do you see suffering and glory in the statement about the transfiguration itself in verses 2 and 4? I see it. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Well, where is the suffering and glory that you said should be there? Well, I see it. I see it there because of this. The very fact that Jesus Christ is incarcerated in human flesh is evidence to me of suffering. You say, what do you mean? Well, you know and I know that theologically the Bible teaches us that Jesus had a face-to-face relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And by the very nature of who sinful man really is, Jesus came to this earth in the form of a bondservant, according to Paul in Philippians 2. And he came as an obedient servant, and he did everything that God had commanded him to do. And when he was incarnated as a baby in Bethlehem and began to grow and began to mature and began to take on his adulthood and all through his life and ministry, all the way up and through the cross, all of that is suffering, my friends. All of it. Because Jesus Christ is God. And when He was incarnated, this transfiguration shows me that even in the incarnation and full ministry of Christ, including this event, shows me that He's in the midst of suffering all around Him. You know, there's one other element to this that I think is so very true. Jesus being the God-man... When he was hit with testing and trial, he took that trial and that test to its ultimate limit. You say, how so? Because he never yielded to the temptation around him. You know, you and I, when we're tested and we're, we're tempted with sin, how often or how quickly do we fall to such a temptation? For most of us, it's barely after the temptation has arrived, right? Right? We'll be tempted or tested with something. And before the forces of darkness can even do their fullest work, we've already long since yielded to such a temptation. But Jesus himself never yielded to temptation. And because he didn't, the full brunt of temptation that was coming at him was coming at him furiously, and fervently, all the time, every day, every moment, to its fullest extent, because He never yielded to it. My friends, you and I don't know that kind of suffering. We'll fall by the wayside far, far before those kinds of yieldedness. And because that's true, we don't know what Jesus went through as a man. Thank God He knows what we go through, but we don't know what He went through. Not ever having yielded to that temptation, that's an experience that you and I really don't know about. That's suffering. And yet, even in the midst of being an incarnated man as the divine, He experienced a transfiguration. That's glory. Suffering, the very fact that God was manifest in the flesh. The glory, the very fact that He was God to begin with. That is so rich. That is so theologically rich. You have on that very mountain, in front of those five human beings, two glorified and three yet, the very reality that God was in their midst, that's glory. And yet the very truth that He was the God-man, that's suffering. That's what we see in this transfiguration. You say, how does that relate to me? Well, it does relate to us. It relates to us in this way that we also are the recipients of suffering and we also are the recipients of a glory that is to be revealed to us. We don't know the glory of Christ as He knows it. And we don't know the full brunt of suffering as He knew it. But one thing we do share in, and that is a suffering and a glory. And that's how we can relate to this passage. You know, as a preacher, you always say to yourself, now here's an account of a, of a unique and unrepeatable ex- experience. I mean, here's the transfiguration of Christ. It's on a mountain. It's in the land of Palestine. It's far removed from us. It's 2,000 years ago. It's something in a book that was written that long ago as well. How do I relate to such a thing? What does that mean for me in my life? And the reality is it means so much to me because this is my Savior, and this Savior is a suffering Savior. And in the midst of His suffering, I can begin to understand how it is that I am to be a sufferer. What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I see in the person of Christ an ability to say no to further temptation and to say yes to learn from the suffering in the midst of a desire to see glory? See, there's, a, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. You know that when Mark records that six days after Jesus proclaimed that He would return in the glory of His Father, there were some men, Peter, James, and John, who saw at least a partial glimpse of this very glory. What would it have been like if you were there? You're a follower of Christ. They're followers of Christ. They're unique as apostles, but you are nonetheless a disciple of Christ, right? You're a follower of His. You don't have that unique position, but if you were there or if I were there, what would we be thinking? How would we be learning from Christ? What would be His teaching ministry to us? And it is unforgettable because in this account which has been accounts before and accounts after in Mark's Gospel, Jesus will say repeatedly to His own disciples, Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. I, as the Son of Man, have come to die. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to suffer. I've come to die. And I will be glorified. Beloved, that's the message for us. That's the message today. Am I willing to suffer for Christ Am I willing to see the sufferings that I'm undergoing as an opportunity for a one day description and experience of eternal glory? You say, I want the suffering, but not the glory. Does anyone say that? No. But how many of us say, I want the glory and no suffering? Won't work that way. It won't. It is a guilt edge guarantee bonafide, axiomatic truth. If you are headed for glory, you will suffer. Now, it may be that someone's extent of suffering is greater than yours, but you and I at some point in our Christian experience will suffer. And what we learn is this. Suffering precedes glory. We're not headed for heaven. We're not honed for heaven. We're not fashioned for heaven. We're not skilled to receive glory until the suffering has been completed. That's what we find in this account of the transfiguration. There can be no glory if the suffering does not come first. You know, there's something else in this actual verbiage of the transfiguration that interests me. And that is that Moses and Elijah show up. Now, I told you last time that if you and I were to have an experience Where Moses and Elijah were to show up at our coronation, whatever kind of coronation that may be, that would be a tremendous experience, right? I mean, Moses and Elijah, they received the invitation and they RSVP'd me? I mean, what what an incredible attendance record if you had Moses and Elijah, even if that's all that you had come to your party. Who are Moses and Elijah that would come to this Mount of Transfiguration and why are they there? Well, it's very easy. I believe that Moses and Elijah are there because they represent the law and the prophets. Moses, as you know, was the one who carried the tablets, the Ten Commandments down. He was the one who was given by God the statutes and the ordinances of God. Elijah was the one who represents the prophets. He was not himself a major prophet like Isaiah was. You might say to yourself, why not Moses and Isaiah? Or why not Moses and Jeremiah? Or why not Moses and Ezekiel? Well, the answer, I believe, is because at the last part of the book of Malachi, God says through Malachi these words. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, not the S-O-N, but the S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, the full blazing glory of righteousness, which is a reference to Christ, will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. And there's a reference to Moses. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah. And there's a reference to Elijah. The prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi 4, 2-6. I believe that this reference is being lived out right now on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is that Son of Righteousness. He's that one who is beaming with His glory. And Moses and Elijah show up. They represent the law and the prophets for which Jesus says even about Himself in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill This is the fulfillment of that law. And when the redemption is accomplished on the cross, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. Well, I'll tell you, there is so much theology going on here. Isn't it exciting, Curtis? I'm telling you what, if we understood the theology of passages like this by studying them, by groping with them, by reading them, we would have so much theology in our hearts, we might reach glory a whole lot sooner. Why? Because our minds would be filled with the glory of Christ. Our minds would be consumed with the Son of righteousness bringing healing in its wings. Don't you see? This is an opportunity for us to live out in the only way that we possibly can the experience of the transfiguration of Christ. We weren't there. We don't know exactly what was going on, but I'll tell you what, if I could relive my life, I would be Peter, James, and John. And when I see this scene in my mind over and over and over again, I'd be thinking about two things. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. You say, well, what's the suffering part? Well, there's a lot of suffering. I just read to you that passage in Malachi. And does it not say that when Elijah the prophet comes, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to to their fathers? You say... Well, Jesus alluded to the fact that Elijah did come in the latter part of this passage. Where did Elijah come? And that's obviously a reference to John the Baptist. And you say, well, when John the Baptist came, did he restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers? It doesn't seem so. seems as though there's as much sinfulness going on at that period as before or after. What is going on here? We have to understand that Jesus was speaking truth when he said Elijah did come, John the Baptist did come. But that particular part of that passage will only be ultimately fulfilled when the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, comes in his second coming glory. And I believe in that millennial kingdom when Jesus restores that which he will be, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the fathers will be turned in their hearts to the children. And the children will be turned in their hearts to the fathers. You see, if he's the ultimate fulfiller of both the law and the prophets, then he's the ultimate Elijah. He's the ultimate Moses. And when he comes in his second coming glory, he's going to make everything right. All the accounts are going to be turned to a place where he then becomes the accountant. He's the one who's going to come and rule with a rod of iron. He's the one who's going to smash the dissidents. And he's the one who's going to come and bring mercy and grace to his people. He's going to turn the fathers' hearts to their children and the children to their fathers. You see, Moses and Elijah are there. But when the transfiguration is complete, is Moses and Elijah, are they standing there with transfigured bodies? No. Christ is the only one there. Because He's the only one ultimately that matters. And when He comes, He'll be that son of righteousness. Boy, that... Sun is beaming ever brighter because the sun of righteousness has come with healing. You say, well, if this was a great confirmation between Moses and Elijah, is that all that is necessary? No. There's a whole lot more confirmation that's going on here. Look at verse five. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. You say, what kind of confirmation is going on here? Well, I believe three. Three signs of confirmation. One, Peter, James, and John. They're important. They're not ancillary to this. Why? Because the scripture says that at the mouth of two or three witnesses let everything be established. And so Peter, James, and John, human beings, frail, yes, but eyewitnesses, yea, verily, yes, and they are standing there watching this before their very eyes. It wasn't an illusion, it wasn't a vision, it was reality. There was a real mountain. These were real men. And they saw what they really saw. And what they really saw was Jesus Christ being transfigured before them. And at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. And what kind of encouragement would this be when those three men went back to the other disciples and then the early church and said, We saw the majesty on high be transfigured before us. We were there. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's important. Oh, it could be that someone might say, well, listen, if there was no human being around, how can we trust that He was transfigured? Peter, James, and John were there. And they were there as the spokesman for the twelve. They were there as the ones who were intimate with Christ. And they saw the intimacy of His very glory. What an incredible experience. What other confirmation was there? How about the cloud? You know that the cloud in the Old Testament represented God's presence And God was showing His very presence in that place. I wish we had time to look at all of the references to the cloud as pictured in the Old Testament. God the Father's sustaining presence. That's sure enough a confirmation that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that He will soon one day return. And then I believe there's a third and obviously the most compelling confirmation of all, the voice of God the Father Himself the anthropomorphic voice of God. God taking human condescension, an audible voice, and saying to the very people present, Moses and Elijah, Christ Himself, Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Now you know as well as I do that Peter at least on one occasion, has said, Lord, no, you will not go through the suffering. It could even be that when Peter says here, let's stop, let's build a tabernacle right here, let's set up a church. I mean, we have it all. Let's just do what we do, and let's just do it from this mountain and have everybody come here. It might even be applied, we don't have to go or do anything else. This may even be that second time where Peter speaks out of turn. Now, admittedly, the Bible says he was terrified. So we have to give him a little bit of credit. But one thing is for sure. Peter is not understanding that this glory is short-lived. It's a glimpse. It's a stage. It's a piece of the puzzle. And he doesn't understand it. And so what does Jesus do? Immediately coming down from the mountain, the Son of Man will be treated with contempt. It blows Peter's circuits. The disciples don't understand. What do you mean? It says they huddled together with themselves, pondering the statement. What does this dying and rising from the dead mean? They will understand it, but they don't understand the suffering now. So what do we have? We have the voice of God the Father Himself saying, and I believe even principally to Peter as the spokesman, Peter, listen to Him. You see it? Peter, you have a lot of ideas. And you're a great leader. And you speak boldly. Now what I want you to do is be quiet and listen to Him. And what will he listen to? He'll listen to Christ on numerous occasions after this account say, The Son of Man must suffer, 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 suffer. Will he listen? Will he learn? Will he understand? Ultimately, yes. On the short term, no. Does it remind you of anyone? Should we take the exhortation ourselves? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Christ. Are you listening to Christ? Are you reading about Christ? Are you involved in hearing His words? Christ said to the would-be disciples of His day, Why call me Lord, Lord, and what? Do not do the things that I say. How many of us would be in the category of saying, Lord, Lord, but then not doing what he says? Listen to him. And what he says, if I'm listening, is suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. And then the proclamation, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain... He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. You see the suffering? It's listed right there. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked Him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He said, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. They're consumed with what happens next eschatologically. He's saying this is the next thing that's going to happen tomorrow. Suffering. You might be concerned with what is the next item on the eschatological calendar. I'm telling you that tomorrow suffering comes. How is it that the Son of Man will be repeatedly in the midst of suffering from this point? to the cross. That's what He wants their focus to be upon. And if, if the God of heaven had just spoken to me with an audible voice, listen to Him, what do you think I should be doing? I should be listening. I should be opening my eyes. And I should be saying, if my eyes are presently closed, Lord, I have no ability to open my own eyes. You must do it for me. If you are willing, please do so. Lord, I want to learn from you. I want to learn the theology of suffering and glory. And we know that this reference to Elijah is John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came, it doesn't appear as though when he came first, he restored all things. And so when Jesus is alluding to John the Baptist here, he says, here's what happened to John the Baptist before there's a restoration of all things they will do to Him whatever they wish. And that's exactly what they did. They killed Him. They beheaded Him. And John the Baptist experienced the exact replica of what Jesus is saying, suffering and glory. When His head hit the floor, He was in the presence of God Himself. Glory. His suffering ultimately allowed Him the very picture of and reality of glory itself. And it was, I no doubt believe, glorious. The forerunner, the one who was looked upon as weird and strange, eating locusts and wild honey and wearing prophet-like clothes and living in the wilderness and being ridiculed, misunderstood, spurned by the religious leaders who didn't accept his view of repentance, who didn't like his baptismal ceremony, and who ultimately killed him for his righteousness. He suffered, no question about it. But in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of the ultimate act of suffering, giving his life, there was glory. Glory. Oh, some of you are closer to glory, at least chronologically, than I am. But I confess, there are days when I say, Lord, if you are willing, I want to see that glory. Isn't it going to be great that even though in the midst of suffering that we're undergoing now, that we know for a fact beyond the shadow of a doubt with certainty because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of God, that glory awaits us? Isn't it true that in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says himself, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Oh, that's so good. He says in one verse, there is suffering, but there is glory. You can suffer because you know that glory awaits. Does He not say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How? How is it being renewed day by day, Paul? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And what kind of comparison is it, Paul? Far beyond all comparison. You mean to tell me that any suffering I go through here is compared with glory as momentary light affliction. Like a fly on the arm. That's it. Peter himself says, And though you suffer for a little while, you say, that is easy for you to say. You haven't suffered like me. You haven't gone through what I've gone through. You, you've never been stricken with cancer. Uh, you don't know the, the ugliness of a divorce. You don't know what it means to live with this or that person. No, that's true. That's true. But you've never suffered like Christ. The ultimate act of suffering never Never, ever yielding to the temptation set before Him. See, He's our model. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with that temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I'll tell you what, there is no suffering in this life, no matter what someone could say, no matter what we could read in the paper, no matter what we could see on the television, that is worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us because all of this suffering is for us momentary light affliction because it's producing in us an eternal weight of glory. I think Peter understood that. I think he heard the message. I think he ultimately learned it. Even if he didn't learn it here, he learned it ultimately because he himself said this, in this you greatly rejoice. Even now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering and glory. He later said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Probably a reference to these Nero garden party fires where these Christians were put on these poles and burned alive at Nero's maniacal request. Don't be upset, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Oh, this is sweet theology. You say, no, no, that's bitter. God can make anything bitter that which is sweet. David Garland says as we close, very insightfully, many in the church today suffer from a form of Bible amnesia. They remember only the parts that promise wealth, happiness, glory, and forget or fail to listen to the calls for self-sacrifice, suffering, and bearing one's cross. He says they want to skip suffering 101 and move on to advanced placement in glory 909. I admit it. I confess. Lord, give me the glory. Eliminate the suffering. But if there is no suffering, there is no glory. Let's pray together. Father, this is a wonderful and exciting text. It proclaims to us that suffering and glory are linked together. It tells us so clearly that while this is an unrepeatable and unique event in the life of our Lord, never to be experienced by any human being, it nevertheless shows us that we ourselves must be transformed from one level of glory to another and that through our sufferings. Lord, who are we to tell you as the potter how to make the clay? Who are we to tell you in the midst of our suffering that it shouldn't be this way? That it's too hard? That it's too difficult? We ought to thank you that we're suffering at all, because it shows us we're a child of the King. Thanks be to Christ, who in the midst of all of the suffering, enduring the testing to its fullest brunt, went all the way to that cross for the joy set before Him and said, die, it is finished. Thank you that he didn't come down from that cross and say, I will suffer no more. Father, may we as followers of Christ look at his example. And while there are uniquenesses there with regard to his transfiguration and his redeeming work, he tells us, nevertheless, you will suffer. In this world, you will have tribulation." Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I pray for those here that you would give them great comfort and encouragement today that whatever suffering and sorrow they're undergoing, there is a glory that is to be revealed far beyond all comparison. May we live in light of it, growing into it, for your honor and your glory.